Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Everyone, we are back with our weekly discussion episodes. On today's conversation, Sagar and I discuss the Nord Stream pipeline leak slash explosion, nuclear war, and the risks of escalation given Putin's recent statements. And of course, the broader debate facing Europe as energy crises and prices continue to rise and the stakes going into winter continue to be what they are. If you enjoy this conversation, would love for you to go to realignment.supercast.com. It's how we fund the show. We are monetized through subscriptions. You can go to the link in the show notes or once again, realignment.supercast.com. Five a month, 50 a year or 500 for a lifetime membership. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'd love to see you in the comments or reply to our Substack newsletter to engage further. And we will see you all next time. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to share a message from the podcast sponsor, Lincoln Network. You can join us in Miami for Lincoln's annual conference, Reboot, exploring technology, culture, and politics. You can hear from past realignment guests, including David Sachs, Mike Solana, Antonio Garcia Martinez, Jimmy Sony, and other tech experts as they discuss the greatest opportunities and challenges ahead. Visit rebootconference.org to learn more and use code THE, capital T, H E, capital R, realignment, capital P, pod, for $50 off the ticket price. Hope to see you there. Hey, Sagar, a lot to discuss today. Let's start with a story that I haven't quite made my mind up about the Nord Stream pipeline explosions slash sabotage slash who benefits. Give me your explanation of the story and what you think about it. I actually wrote my monologue on this, so this is very helpful. Uh, so I've, so I'll go down the list. So exactly Monday, local time, uh, 12 nautical miles outside of Danish waters um, from an island that I'm not going to try and pronounce. There were a Sorry, leak. Sorry, can I pause real a, quick? This is a yes. fun saga story opportunity. You used to speak yeah. Danish. So it's yeah, kind of a disaster a that child. you can't pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, just for people to know, I was in Denmark when I was like three or four years old. And apparently, like I knew a decent amount of Danish, even just from just being there for like three months, which is crazy. Uh, but I was like four, so I literally don't remember it. Uh, okay, so yeah, Copenhagen. Shout out to Copenhagen, Legoland, and Farup. Danes know what I'm talking about. All right, so outside, 12 nautical miles away from the territorial waters of Denmark, away from this Danish island, there's a leak that is detected in the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Now, the reason that that matters is that neither of these pipelines are carrying a lot of gas to Europe. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline has actually been shut off since August. So that's weird, interesting. The leak immediately is then followed by speculation of what the hell happened here. Swedish seismologists, and this is key, they're the only ones who are claiming this so far, have said that they have evidence that this was on the Richter scale, equivalent to like 100 something kilotons or whatever of TNT. So they're saying it was an underwater explosion. I may have gotten that wrong. So please don't everybody 
fixate on that. All right. Anyway, what they're saying is that so Richter scale evidence says there was an explosion. So that means that the current conclusion being drawn by Europe, and this is now the narrative from here on out, is that this was, quote unquote, an act of sabotage. And obviously, if it was an act of sabotage, then the culprit is likely Russia. Ukraine calling this an act of, quote, terrorism by the Russian state. Um, you, The EU commissioner saying that we will respond in full force. The reason why this is really weird is number one, this is completely outside of Ukraine. This is this is not in the Ukrainian theater of war. So this, by definition, means that this is like a new frontier that we're dealing with. That new frontier is critical energy supplies for Europe. But that goes back to well, is it? Because actually, it wasn't really carrying that much gas to in the pipeline. Then it comes down to, and I really don't know what to make of this, Marshall. This is really weird. This very strange tweet by Anne Applebaum's husband, uh, Radek Sikorsky. Sikorsky is a member of the European Parliament. He was Minister of Foreign Affairs for the EU under Donald Tusk, um, very like anti-Russia, like his wife, Anne Applebaum. Yeah, he's a Polish citizen, Polish government official. That's why it's important. He tweeted something very weird where he tweeted a photo of the bubbling gas coming out of the pipeline and just said, thank you, USA. And he kept it ambiguous as to who the culprit was. Now, he, he basically made it like it's not an issue anyways, because actually the very same day, Poland just inaugurated a Baltic Sea pipeline uh, between Norway, which is now the largest gas supplier for all of Europe. So I don't even want to get into the who benefits, who is responsible. I just think people need to understand the situation. We're like, that's the situation. Um, as I understand it, they will not even be able to begin investigation for a week until all the gas is out of the pipeline. But I guess my fear is, is that people are going to jump to either conclusions, both the Kremlin and not the Kremlin, um, in the interim week before we even have any of the quote unquote facts. Because I think it's very important that we establish like exactly the cause, like how if it was an explosion, how explosion happened before any of the response. Already seeing naval assets move into the Baltic Sea and everybody's on high alert um, in the European commands. So that's where we're at right now. Yeah, that's a great way of summarizing it. Look, A, news everyone can use. Number one thing I've learned during this war is take a step back and just don't sling yeah. a take. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tucker, we're recording this Wednesday morning. Tucker last night did a monologue blaming the US for it. Um, there is was a it based on of, a tweet? I didn't see it. What did he say? Yeah, basically, the, the, basically, he was blaming the US for it in the sense that Biden – had talked about how the pipeline wasn't going to go forward. He's obviously citing the tweet, talking about how mm. this is like the U.S. trying to put the Europeans in a position where they can't get the European, you know, the, the Russian gas anymore and, and move forward. And I'll just really cite what you just said here when you say that, look, like you just actually just don't know. Because another thing folks have pointed out, no one inherently seems to really benefit from this. Um the U.S. already had, I think, gotten past the point where we were concerned the Russians were going to cave. Sorry, the Europeans would cave. It's not June. It's not July. It's not mm-hmm. August. So we just genuinely don't know. So that's just the the reaction here. We, we genuinely don't know, and I think people should just think of the news over the coming week, which more is sure to come, as you just pointed out. But just assume right now that we don't know. Um, that's yeah, and I think that's the key. Well, that's what scares the shit out of me, which is that then you have the see. I I think this guy. I mean, if he has intel, like he's got a now's the time to share it, Roddick, because you have poked the bear, my friend. Uh, you can't just put stuff out there and not have any info. 
Same on the European side. I mean, they're already ratcheting it up significantly on the, and once again, fine, you know, but you better have some serious restraint until you have facts that are backing it up, that can be verified, that can be put out. You need the actual data, you need the tables. Everything right now is very piecemeal. Obviously, the continent is freaked out. I mean, I don't blame them. This is crazy. I'll give the case for both. I mean, the case for Russia is Nord Stream 1 doesn't have any actual gas flowing through. It was shut down in August. So, well, that means that this is a way to show the Europeans, it's like, hey, yeah, actually, we can destroy your critical energy infrastructure overnight. You need us. Um, you know, your your nice little pipeline between Norway um, and Germany, Norway and Poland and Denmark, like we can actually screw that up very easily if we want to. And that's the largest gas supplier to Europe. So you should think twice about this. Oh, by the way, it's also getting colder. And now is the most critical time for the European gas market. So if I'm Russia, that's a very easy way to not hurt my own bottom line to send a major warning shot. At the same time, I mean, it's pretty crazy. We're talking about territorial waters only 12 nautical miles. Oh, sorry, international waters only 12 nautical miles from the territorial waters of a NATO Article 5 ally. That's nuts. Uh, critical energy supply to Germany, one of the great powers, the largest economy in all of Europe. I mean, it would be a major escalation on the part of the Kremlin. Like Putin already has his own problems. Like you could give a case both ways as to why he would and why he wouldn't want to do that. On the Western side, uh, you could also say that one of the things that you would re want to do this, like you said, Marshall, is to lock the Europeans in. You're like, now you have no choice but to go ha whole hog against Russia because now the pipeline itself is cut off. Now you have no choice also to use this new pipeline. Um, I think the fact that the new pipeline was being inaugurated on the same day as this attack is also really weird. So I'm just in a situation where I'm, I'm withholding all judge. I, I have no idea. I only want people to know all the facts around this because as we've seen with like previous instigator events, if you don't do that, then it just sets things up for conspiracy catastrophes and like Gulf, of, you know, Gulf of Tonkin, USS Maine, like all of a sudden it's like, no, like with that, the last thing you want to avoid is a major escalation on an incident on which the facts are not clear. And unfortunately, that's what I, that's what my worst case scenario that I'm feared is, if that makes sense. Yeah. And look, the underlying story here that still just matters is the Europeans, regardless of what people think about the specific policies that the West, NATO, US, et cetera, are taking in Ukraine, the Europeans were dependent on Russia for energy. And that was a disastrous decision. And regardless of whether Nord Stream 1, 2, et cetera, are off the table in the next year or off the table in 10 years, this has to come to an end. Um, at a clear level. And the real debate here is what happens with that. I, I, there was actually an interesting news story I'd love to hear your thoughts on, where yeah. someone and a bunch of folks, Peter Zion was tweeting about this too, folks have pointed out that if we're looking at this big deglobalization, things are coming home story, Europe is being so wrecked by these high energy costs that there's actually an opportunity for the US to actually pick up a bit of manufacturing slack there. That's just like another interesting case here. Like this is like another, if the story we're telling is that 2019, once again, referencing the Peter Zion episode, trade is never going to be as free as it was then. It seems that 2022 is a year where, wow, we had this huge 30, 40 year period where energy was relatively cheap in Europe. And that's not going to be true going forward. How would you think about that part? Yeah, it's a, that's a tough one. Because uh, on the one hand, I'm pro-US manufacturing. On the other hand, I'm anti-global uh, recession on the European continent. So <laughs> when you put it that way. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not. It's complicated. I don't know. I mean, at the same time, it just underscores like 
frankly, how much of a farce modern European economy kind of was. It was, and Joe Weisenthal has written about this over Bloomberg. It was effectively just all of European manufacturing capacity was underwritten by cheap Russian natural gas for the last basically 15 years. German industry combined with EU trade laws and tariffs against the United States and protectionism protected their economy while it was belied by cheap energy. That made it much more competitive on the global and world market. Auto, many of the other ceramics, many of the other things that they produce in Germany. The moment that you see the high gas price, natural gas price and energy price go up, their trade deficit goes vertical and inverted overnight, which is crazy. I mean, it's the first time in 20 years. So yeah, look, like I'm pro-American manufacturing, um, but you know, it, it, it scares me to see the, I mean, you're, you're effectively watching the bedrock of the European Union go inverted on its trade def, on, on its trade surplus for the first time ever. This is a 27 member block, like chaos in Europe, as we've learned, doesn't necessarily stay in Europe. It has all sorts of social ramifications. I kind of did a monologue on this, which is that when you combine this with already the major social strife in Europe, you are just basically breathing life into the anti-EU movement in every single country. And you may not see it in the major Western powers, but in the smaller European powers, it's everywhere. Slovakia, uh, the Czech Republic, obviously Italy just happened. Sweden just happened. Uh, there, there was another one I was trying. Brussels actually just had a huge rally against energy prices. And also the year, French have elections in April. That's gonna be a big test uh, for the Macron government. By the way, Liz Truss government right now, very on the rocks in the UK. I mean, it just feels like there's chaos all over the continent. And the reason that I am not cheering for a global recession there is you don't know what the hell is going to come out of chaos. Not just for you. Screw Like, forget the Ukraine situation. Like, in general, you have no clue. Yeah. And the key thing is I really want to emphasize that I am not cheering for a uh, global yeah, recession yeah. here. I think what I'd add to what you're describing, too, is well, you and I may like disagree on this a bit, but this is why I'm a little less up in arms about the fact that the US is spending more on weaponry going to Ukraine than the Europeans are, at least for this first year. Well, because it's not the way- a little more, Mark. Let's let's be very specific about how much is that. Sure. Let's the, say that we are the number sure, the, one the, by the, tenfold the, spender. The, yeah. As as the U.S. has historically been since the 20th century, we are obviously spending the most on arms and aid and those different in those different sets of things. I think what I would add though is that the Europeans are clearly in it with this winter. They're going to be huge. There's the huge cost of migration. There's the political instability. I think they have plenty of things on their plate right now, and it's not easy to look at the situation in the, on the continent right now and say that they're free riding. There's a longer term debate about NATO spending and those different percentages of GDP they need to be adding there. I'm definitely like with folks who are more skeptical of the European commitment to their own defense. But at least for the next year, everything we're talking about here is like, okay, this seems to be a pretty reasonable trade. The US spends money, the Europeans bear the really deep economic and political brunts of it. That's what I'm okay with for basically the next year. The reason I disagree is that we, our population also has had to incur hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars already in costs. And here's the truth, like it's their country, or sorry, it's their continent, not ours. They should have a tenfold more investment than we do. And that's the issue that I have. And I get very annoyed by people being like, but Estonia is spending X amount of, I'm like, I don't give a shit. I'm like, sorry, no offense, Estonia, nice country. Estonia is the size, lesser than the size of a national park in the United States, a single one. Like in terms of the great European powers, 
They are not pulling their weight in any sense whatsoever. And yeah, it could cry me a river about your high energy prices. Our gas is like 378 a gallon here in the US. Our heating oil is about to go up by like 40% in contracts. Sure, we're not suffering as much as them, but we're still suffering a hell of a lot. Also, the new bill also doesn't mean that we're not going to be taking in Ukrainians. That was another part of the 12 billion. So that's why, look, on an absolute basis, fine. But, and there's a lot of polling to back this up. People just want them to be somewhat commensurate with the US. And I just think it's outrageous. Like when I'm looking here at the military number, let's look pure military alone. This is from, I can't, I'm not going to pronounce it. The, the Kiel Institute for the World Economy. All right. So looking at all of this, the United States has spent currently in terms of commitments, 25 billion in military aid alone. There's an additional 9 billion in the CR that's about to pass. That is five times more than every other entity on the continent. And the only entity, that entity happens to be a little country called the United Kingdom. Germany, which is literally the fourth largest economy on earth, has only spent 1.2 billion, which is less than a single distribution by the US. That's bullshit. I mean, Poland has spent more than the Germans have in absolute dollars. So same with France. I mean, France has actually committed only 0.23 billion in military aid. And by the way, France is a good military uh, producer. Their equipment is quite good. Uh, Their air power and uh, many of their ammunition more. Anyway, the point I'm making is that I just think everybody says, yeah, like in the grand scheme, but like, when's the grand scheme? Like now is the biggest war in Europe since World War II. And they're still not, quote unquote, pulling their weight. And at this point, like we're, look, this comes back to the Nord Stream thing. This is why it scares the shit out of me, which is that every single one of these countries that has Article 5, if they go too far and they pull, they, they, you know, do something crazy, it only takes one. And then we're in this and, you know, that could go nuclear very, very quickly. So anyway, that, that just belies like why I fundamentally don't trust them. I don't think they're particularly good allies. Yeah. And I think that's fair, especially, especially regarding Germany and France. I mean, you can, it's kind of funny if you, if you go to Ukraine hawk Twitter, a niche of a niche of a segment, they're not happy with the French or Germans either. The Germans have been very obstinate when it comes to deploying tanks. And this is the broader story of the past decade where you and I just totally agree. The Germans have been incredibly frustrating since Merkel. There's that you know funny picture of the Germans laughing when Trump is at a NATO meeting yeah. talking about how they need right. to worry about energy. I need to do an episode on Germany because there's just something interesting there. And if you're really going to focus on that part of it, the Germans just not I don't know. There's this a theme you and I've been really interested in is how countries like reassess what their purpose and their role is. And the Germans, rightfully so, were able to spend the rest of the 20th century being like, whoa, guys, we kind of, you know, played a huge role Mm -hmm. in one and then started a next war. We're going to chill back and just be in the middle. Because also, let's not forget during the first Cold War. The Germans, Germany was where you were going to have World War III fought. So that role entirely makes sense. The current German role, which is this weird, mushy middleism in either direction, just doesn't help. So that's that's really where I'd emphasize pushing. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on the the nuclear topic because this one is top of mind for folks, I know for sure. So number one, my immediate takeaway is just deep deep, deep, deep skepticism of the Russia nuclear threat itself, 
and you don't engage in this rhetoric, so I'm not like putting this on you, but like, look, like we've had David Sachs on the podcast. I like David. There's been a unhelpful degree of bedwetting every single time the Russians bring up nukes. It's literally the ninth or 10th time that Medvedev and other Russians have said nuclear war could happen. And it's getting a little exhausting to see folks see them cynically make these statements, which by the way, only happen whenever they have any sort of setback. So once the Russians were pushed out of Kyiv, all of a sudden we had lots of talk about nukes. Then once the Ukrainian counteroffensive in May, June, July really bogged down, the nuclear talk went away because we weren't as confident. Now that the Ukrainian offensive is going well again, and you have the upcoming, the upcoming or current referendums in the Referendum. breakaway territories, yeah. referendums, heavy quotation marks for those who are listening to the audio of this, they're talking about nukes again. Overall, the reason why I am not concerned is A, we aren't giving the Ukrainians offensive weapons. So we're not playing a role in, in I think, in, in necessitating any legitimate fears the Russians have for this statehood. B, we didn't do the no-fly zone. We don't have NATO troops in country. Those are the key policies that would really matter. If we were back in February, March, April, when we had that insane no-fly zone debate, that's where I get incredibly concerned. If you have a situation yeah. where the U.S. is shooting down Russian MiGs, that's where I'd worry about nukes. But right now, I think it's pure bluster designed to get at our confidence. I think the issue, though, Marshall, is that it's one of those things where the tail risk is so high that you have no choice but to have to take every single one seriously. And like I agree with you. You can be full of shit nine times, but you can be full of shit 1,000 times. But if it's, you're not full of shit on the 1,001th time, well, then the world is literally over. So that's why you do have to take it seriously. So I don't know. I, I will stand up a little bit for David Sachs, which is that the reason why I was very concerned, I don't know if he saw this, Putin actually in his, and the, by the way, this is why you have to pay attention. Uh, the Chinese military and the, and I'll never thought I would praise China, but here we go. Uh, the Chinese military and the US military have multifaceted interests that would have to play a part in order to launch a nuclear missile. Now, according to our own Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that does not exist in Russia, aka Putin has sole decision-making power over nukes. Therefore, the nuclear doctrine, which is published by the US and China, really matters because it's an agreed-upon doctrine by all the stakeholders who would be involved in a nuclear detonation. Whenever we're talking about Russia, there's their official nuclear doctrine, and then there's obviously the mind of Vladimir Putin. So whenever he updated recent nuclear doctrine in his speech from his office to specifically include, quote, territorial integrity, that was a major move by not, I'm not just saying this, there's a nuclear analyst in the, in the EU who are specifically talking about this. That was a new update in the first time ever that both Putin and anyone from the Kremlin had ever intimated that that would be authorization, not just for nuclear deterrence, this is the key, but for a first strike use. So when Putin does that, then I have no choice but to take seriously the fact is, look, this referendum is bullshit in these regions. Yeah, sorry. Apparently the tankies are very upset with me. I didn't know that. Yeah, give the context um, for this. I, I didn't. Somebody sent me this. Uh, the tank, quick, there's quick, a bunch quick of tankies. We never actually talked about tankies. Could you define yeah. tanky for non-online uh, listeners? God, I don't even know how to describe it. Just like full in the tank, quote unquote, for um, for It's Westerners. It, 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 it used it, to be it, communists, it, it, but like- it's now West, it's the it's, Chinese yeah. and the Russians. 
they're yeah. not commies. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, they're basically they're basically so, they're anti they're anti they're they're anti they're domestic Western anti Westerners who yes. effectively support the Russians and Chinese. Right. It comes from it's in reference actually. It's actually interesting history. I know you you like yeah. are interested in this bit in this bit of it. In fifty six, when they put down the Hungarian Revolution, this was the the Soviets. The yeah. tankies were what the Brits called British leftists who defended uh, the Soviets. Oh, because obviously right, because Hungarian tanks. That makes sense. Because yeah. you could obviously be yeah, the the you know the T fifty mm. whatevers who like come in and crush the rebellion because you can be a leftist and say, hey, like you shouldn't put down a peaceful revolution <laughs> right. in Eastern Europe. But there were far, 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 far left. We're not trying to. The, the whole point of the reason why tanky matters as a term is like we're not trying to say that all leftists hate the West. But there was just a specific part of the left that has that. So yeah. So go on. The tankies were you know unhappy about your explanation. I was actually speaking about this with Crystal, which is that U.S. leftists are ignoring actual Russian leftists. One of whom is a friend of our show, who is like freaking fuck out about this mobilization and literally has his life in danger because he continues to tweet things that are critical of the Putin regime. Like I genuinely wish those people had the courage that the actual leftists in Russia have who routinely go to protests, risking conscription and risk arrest and death. So, you know, it's anyway, I'll put that aside. The point is, is that when these sham referendums matter is because it doesn't matter if we don't consider the sham territories Russian or not. If they define it as Russian, as they do, by the way, with Crimea, and this is why I would disagree with what you're saying about, uh, quote unquote, offensive weapons. Offensive is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, Ukrainians just defensing its territory whenever it hits Crimea to Russia. That's an offensive attack. And one of the things that we know is that Zelensky really wants these longer range missile systems specifically to hit Crimea. And Biden actually denied him for it. Props to Biden because he was like, yeah, I don't think I don't. He's like, I'm not in on this one, which does show you, though, that's informed by intelligence. So that is why. Look, you might be right. And if you were talking about if you were talking about any conventional military response, I would agree with you. But nukes are just different. And I think that is why people are rightfully scared. And also why I think you need to update your thinking a little bit on that, which is that, you know, a lot of people thought this way during the Cuban Missile Crisis and more and Kennedy, you know, many of the others also whenever any time they were talking about nukes, I always think about Eisenhower whenever he laughed uh, Dulles and them out of the room, whenever they were want to suggest, quote unquote, tact. That's why also the use of the word tactical nuke drives me insane. There's no such thing as a tactical nuke. The nuclear taboo is here to stay. It's 2022. Any use of any nuclear weapon, regardless of detonation, would be and should be considered uh, a brand new step, you know, in the evolution of, not evolution, but in the in, in the paradigm. It would be a gigantic paradigm shift. So anyway, that's why I think we have to treat it differently. And you have to take it seriously. Yeah. And to clarify, my position isn't that I don't take it seriously. And my position is not that I can't imagine a scenario Mm -hmm. because I can imagine a scenario. Me too. Where Russians utilize what they would deem a tactical nuclear weapon. Um, uh, because the, this is, I want to make clear something you just said, which is when you're saying you, you really object to like the phrasing of, oh, tactical nukes are different than like strategic nukes. A tactical nuke of which would probably be deployed in the battlefield, I did some reading on this, would be more intense than anything that was ever used at Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Yeah, exactly. So at exactly. that point, 
what does that that distinction doesn't mean exactly what what you think it means. But my point is just, and this is what I was really attacking with the bedwetting. The the bedwetting that I'm attacking is Putin and Medvedev have invoked the use of a nuclear weapon. Therefore, what we need to do now is entirely shift our policy, which is. Mm. Okay, they've invoked a nuke. Our policy isn't working. Therefore, we should reduce aid to Ukraine. Therefore, we should somehow magically force Zelensky to the table, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because there's a bunch of really great threads on this. The underlying thing that we're all basically trying to preserve here is just like nuclear deterrence and the non-use of nuclear weapons, which is the like crowning achievement of US slash global foreign policy left, right, center, Soviets, American, Chinese, et cetera, since 1945. If you just basically create a scenario where all Putin has to do or any world leader has to do is say, oh, we could vaguely use nuclear weapons if you don't do what we want, that actually could increase the, increase the chances of nuclear proliferation. If what's, 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 Let's talk this out. And once again, these are scenarios, we're imagining them, we're trying to give the nuance here. But if we have a scenario where Putin says, hey, I could use a nuke, and then the US says, okay, that is such a threat that we are no longer going to back the Ukrainians, we're effectively going to force a, a peace deal, which concedes huge swaths of, swaths of Ukraine to, to the Russians, the lesson that other countries will take is, oh, wow, great, nukes aren't just about regime preservation. So the reason why we're never going to conduct regime change in North Korea, the reason why we're not going to do it in China, the reason why we're not going to do it in Russia, unlike Libya, unlike Iraq, unlike pre-Mullah Iran, is they have a nuclear weapon, and a nuclear weapon is the way you perceive your regime stability. That is a concession that everyone has effectively made. You get a nuke, you're pretty much good to go. No, not pretty much. You are literally good to go. Allowing Putin to vaguely threaten us into backing off would be extending that principle, extending it into, oh, if you have a nuke, you could invade other countries, take their territory, and basically do what you want under, under that threat. If that world comes about, A, I think you're going to see much more increased nuclear proliferation. B, you're going to see countries in Eastern Europe, like countries in Eastern Europe, like to your point, the Poles, the Baltics, et cetera, who are actually increasing their military spending. They're going to say, look, the only way we can actually secure ourselves against Russian expansionism is a nuclear weapon. What do we do if Putin does what he already did in, already did in Ukraine and say, hey, there are Russian speakers in the Baltics who are being discriminated against. I will defend them using all hand, all means at my disposal, including nukes. Once again, my, my point is I'm not even really trying to argue with here because it's super complicated. I'm just trying to say that there's this frustrating dynamic on Twitter where basically the conversation among, let's say, bedwetting was unfair earlier, folks who are hyper-focused on the nuclear issue is, I think they are undercounting that you could increase nuclear risk by making concessions. Yeah, possibly. And but in both same, directions. Possibly, but at the same time, like Ukraine is not a NATO. Okay, well, here's the other thing. Okay, instead of vaguely threatening, what if he actually just turns on his missiles and points them at Ukraine and says, okay, get out. The West has 24 hours. We have to back down. There's no there's no way that we're going to go into a nuclear conflict. That'd be insane for a non-NATO so wait, what is, territory. But this is- but like, this, Let's but this say is he activates his button and is like, I'm ready. I'm going to push it right now. You have 24 hours in order to subsist to your, uh, in order to stop shipping weapons to Ukraine, or I will nuke Ukraine. 
It's like, well, then I can pretty much guarantee you that the Biden administration, pretty much any American president would probably stop within that 24 hours because I don't think anybody wants to actually go to nuclear war for Ukraine. So in a way, like vaguely threatening and then actually doing it are all have to be considered on the scale of seriousness. I also I'm look, I'm with you. I agree. But also that's why nuclear proliferation was so bad in the first place. And at a certain point, like this is all just based on norms and it was probably inevitable. I mean, the fact is that regime preservation was kind of like nuclear proliferation 2.0. That's why India, Pakistan, North Korea and Iran are, are Iran trying to go nuclear. That's why Israel has nukes as well. Those are all from a preservation perspective. But the whole reason why even having it in the first place, and this is why, you know, the idea of the Nazis going nuclear was so terrifying is that all that governs this is norms. And like Russia is just, I guess, waking up to what it means to be a nuclear arm. Here's, we haven't lived in this scenario. There's never been a nuclear arm power with its back against the wall, uh, being humiliated like this on the global stage. Like we're in a new phase of, con- frankly, I think it was inevitable with the existence of the nuclear weapon. And, you know, this is, this is just why I still think you have to take it very, very seriously uh, whenever he does say these things. Like whenever you're updating nuclear, uh, you know, let's go back to that, Marshall. They don't have the same nuclear taboo that you and I do around tactical nukes. That evolution didn't come up in uh, Russian military doctrine. I think they still believe in the quote unquote tactical nuke. And yeah, let's go like one level. To the, the only difference between a t- tactical and a strategic nuclear weapon is like tactical is like has a battlefield use and strategic is lo- like literally used for quote unquote strategic purposes as in to take out an entire nation. But the reason why like this is all just language that drives me crazy is no, 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 no. There's no such thing as a tactical nuke. Like it's a 200 megaton bomb. Like mm. it's X amount bigger than Hiroshima. It would wipe half of Ukraine or whatever off of the map in a single in a single blast so i'm just at a point where look on the polls but the reason why i disagree on the polls baltics is they already have a nuclear umbrella like we are going to nuclear war for poland i'm not saying i necessarily think that's a good thing but that's the that's a u.s senate ratified treaty it is what it is same with the baltics that's not the case for ukraine and I think the fact of the matter is, is that this is why I believe very strongly in alliances that are bought in by the entire democratic system is that because the world is a dangerous place because of uh, especially rising quote unquote powers and the lack of the unipolar moment, which we are frankly just living in today, whether we like it or not, clearly defined lines of what you fight for, what you don't, escalatory ladders and more matter more than anything. That's why the variance in the Ukraine conflict scares me the most. Yeah, and the Biden folks were have already openly and privately signaled to the Russians that the use of a nuclear weapon would be a just a point of no return. Um, so several things. One, I mean, this is where. So look, let me let me put it this way: if the Russians were to, and once again, you're, you're speaking the hypothetical, so I'm not trying to be like, but actually, mm-hmm. you in the literal here, if the Russians were to actually just point their nuclear stockpile at Ukraine. And then say, cease Western support, those different things, or we'll nuke them. A, if the Russians were to activate and take this conflict to that scale, that would be such a norm violation, you know, to be a hallway monitor, Mm -hmm. that that would just be a point of no return of a relationship with Russia. 
that is where you're transitioning from this is a great power pursuing foreign policy to like this is an actual monstrous, dangerous terrorist state. And at that point, all gas, all energy, all commerce has to be just entirely cut off from Russia. Um, there are various ways that we held back when it came to Russia um, during the sanctions policy. You know, Russians are still allowed to emigrate. There's all the different, all all different um, things like that. I think just, I think just at that point, obviously, I guess if the Russians were, if I were president, and the Russians were pointing nukes in this scenario you're describing, I wouldn't say, okay, then we turn on our nukes and we like go tete a tete. But I would just say that if that if that happens, it's, it's just it. Russia that's a as- measured response, Marshall. That's fine. But what you're saying is, if Russia decides to be North Korea, then we're going to treat them like more North Korea. Yeah, but that's but, but that's, I think that's, you and I both know there are members of the NATO alliance who would say, let's fucking go, and that's what scares me the most. And they have, look, we can't control Latvia. I mean, these Latvians and Lithuanians are like chomping at the bit. They want to go to war like tomorrow. I see, by the way, Lithuanian and Latvian foreign ministry. And I think you people are fucking crazy considering that we're the ones who are probably going to have to bear the brunt and the vast majority of military personnel, nuclear exchange and more. It's not you um, who are going to have to be doing the vast majority. Well, I want to push back on that one, actually, just because, look, the difference and this is why the European discussion is really interesting because if we're talking about Europe, we really should be segmenting Europe. So to your point with Germany and France, there's Western Europe, there's Central Europe, and then there's Eastern Europe. Look, a reason why the Baltics are concerned about a nuclear weapon usage is that A, radiation and fallout would almost certainly escape Ukraine, which obviously makes that escalatory. And if you're a Baltic country, if you're a Pole the Hungarians are obviously a side weird bit of this dynamic. You've just spent 50 plus years of horrific Soviet slash Russian imperialism and conquest at, at, a, at a very literal level. And just given the nuclear fallout, given the actual like NATO placements, the Baltics would suffer through this. So I think the if, 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 if this were, let's say, try to find a good example. If let's imagine a scenario where it was the Dutch, the Dutch were the Uber hawks uh, on the on the anti on, on the anti Russian part. I sympathize with what you're saying, but no. If you if you're a Baltic, you obviously you have skin in the game here. You can do whatever you want, but your fate is linked to us. Like if you want to independently go fight, be my guest. But when we when Washington is at risk for Riga, then Riga shut the fuck up. Um, and I think that that is what bothers me the most. Like when Riga and Estonia and these guys are talking such a massive game and would never have to actually back any of this up on the on the actual strategic level. That is where I get very concerned. And I think that's also a major strike against the Biden administration. I think Blinken should call these people up and just say, you need to shut your mouth. Be like, we're the ones who backs up your entire uh, existence. Let's be honest, if you weren't in NATO, you might've been next. Um, Frankly, Russia probably has just as good of a rationale for invading Ukraine as they do for every single one of the Baltic states. And so given the fact that we are the ones who have to go nuclear and our territory, which is thousands of miles away, is at risk for yours, then I think that you need to be very measured in the way that you talk. You would think some of these guys are posters and not foreign ministers. The way that they talk about you cite the something. war. So, like, what do you? So, like, what are some? But not literally. They're like, always give, give, coming give the, after us for like their Lithuanian foreign ministers always badgering the U.S. for not sending longer range missile systems um, to Ukraine. I'm like, yeah, dude, you're not the one. A, if you have them, you can give it to them. You don't because you're Lithuania. We're the ones who have to make that decision. 
You can give your input privately. That's fine. But like, how dare you advocate for this highly escalatory action whenever we're the ones who have to bear the vast majority of the spending of the cost? And like, look, fine, I get it. There's some Ukrainian refugees or whatever in Lithuania, and they have to deal with it. I'm not putting that. And I'm not, by the way, I've been to Lithuania. I get it. I've been to some of the places where the Nazis liquidated 90% of the uh, Jewish population. These states have been fucked around and fucked with for a thousand years. So I'm not saying it's a good thing. But I am always just going to put nuclear on the pedestal. I've been redoing a lot of my thinking and reading on the nuclear age because it really, I really came to that realization of like, we're just so, I almost feel like it's, um, there's this concept in World War I where the script for World War I was written in the American Civil War. So mm-hmm. I don't want to get too wonky because we're kind of short on time. But basically the siege of Petersburg uh, by Grant and Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia was effectively the script of 60 years later on the Western Front. Like in terms of the tactics, like how exactly it all went down, industrial warfare and like, and it's preview. And I think we just all have to grapple with is like the nuclear age just hasn't been that long. And like we are entering new phases of what it actually means to live in the nuclear age. And I think that one of the consequences of the end of history was thinking that we just had this all solved when just like back then, if you're willing to go back in history, like you can see exactly how the meat grinder of the Western front kind of like became what it was and became one of the most horrific things that the world had ever seen. So I think that we mistakenly thought that we had dodged a bullet um, on warfare. And now we just have to we have to rediscover some of the lessons in the terror of like George Cannon and all these other people in the post-World War era. And also, you know, we're all, I just think that we're all having the same kind of debates that they were in like almost like 1949 after the, uh, the Berlin airlift. It's fascinating to like live in a moment where everything is all up for grabs again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a really good framework for thinking through this. And what I would really just add to this too is, I really don't want to have folks listen to this and come away thinking that I'm very cavalier on the nuclear issue because I refer to myself as a quote unquote moderate hawk because I was incredibly red pilled during the no fly zone conversation. That was a that was that, that, to, that basically when when um, Adam Kinzinger and a lot of DC centric folks were very cavalierly saying it's March. Yeah. No fly zone. This is worth taking the risk relative to the benefits. Like that's that's actually the key thing, because I think that the war in Ukraine is like the most important. I think it's the most important. I think it's one of the most important stories of of the moment. Obviously, on fifteen different levels. That said, the way you protect Ukrainian civilians, from my perspective, is himrars, bullets, artillery shells. Material support, which has been a norm since World War II. The Soviets supply the North Koreans, they supply the North Vietnamese, we supply the Mujahideen. Like, this is the traditional way that you do this. Saying this situation merits taking the risk of a US missile system or a US jet shooting down a Russian bomber or a Russian interdiction or interdiction system does not necessitate that risk. And that brings me into the nuclear category. That was why that would go too far for me. What I am basically alleging, though, is I think the Biden administration has done a good job of staying within clearly articulated bounds 
no NATO troops on the ground. And like, I think where our disagreement is basically is like how far the, the, the width of that bound is. But from my perspective, we are in no what we would call offensive weapons, B, no NATO troops on the ground, and C, no shooting down of, of Russian jets. Because the other thing too, I did a great episode of Robert Farley on this. He pointed this out. He's also what I'd call a moderate hawk on Ukraine. He pointed out that a no-fly zone would actually involve us having to attack yeah. Russian attack territory. Russian because yeah, in order to actually implement a no-fly zone, you have to ensure that our planes, justifiably mm-hmm. so, are completely safe. And there have been numerous, I mean, it's, it's actually like really- You know, actually, Marshall, yeah. uh, beyond your episode, Philip Breedlove, laid all of this out in an interview during the Ukraine conflict. For people who don't know, he was a former NATO commander, you sack your whatever supreme allied commander of Europe. And he also still advocated for no fly zone. Yeah, and look, I think it's fucking nuts. Yeah, and and that's where I fall into like, that's nuts, right? I'm not, the the claim here is not that, let me put it this way, um, to, to say something nice about David Sachs. My disagreement with David would be, I think David thought people like Breedlove were in the driver's seat and you could go back and listen to our episode of this. My claim was they are not in the driver's seat. And they clearly lost that debate. And I actually, if we could do accountability time, because look, like I, I think a lot of like Ukraine doves have had to do a lot of accountability time. A accountability time for quote unquote my side is folks who are desperately advocating for dangerous no-fly zones without, I think, clearly understanding the implications of that policy need to do the same thing. Because I'm not seeing any talk of civilian corridors now. Well, all right. Let me just add it. Let me just end on Yeah, that. give, give your, your end. I get one thing wrong on Ukraine, and I'm a fucking moron. People can be wrong on Iraq, on Afghanistan, on the pullout, on Syria, on Libya, and it's all good. Nobody has to apologize. Listen, I was dead wrong. I, I did a front-to-face camera and admitted the whole thing. I was like, here's why I was wrong. Here's why I got it wrong. Here's how I'm going to think about it in the future. I have never seen that from any of those people. And also what I would say is, fuck, screw the no-fly zone. Uh, because I think that one was just so crazy. It was out of bounds. And even though it was irresponsible, that's that thinking is still alive and well in Washington. Whenever, you know, the force, those no-fly zone people, they're the ones who want to ship the Ukrainians long-range missile systems. The no-fly zone folks, like not only they have had no contrition, they're the ones who are constantly asking to up the ante. They're like, well, Zelensky wants this. Zelensky wants this. Zelensky doesn't get a blank check. Zelensky doesn't run the Pentagon. We do. Like, there has just been an abdication by a lot of these folks with a, and I frankly blame Biden for this. I don't believe in Ukraine first and only. I think Ukraine can be consulted, but if we're going to be the driver's seat of this entire conflict, then it's Ukraine and America first whenever we're considering American policy. Ukrainian aims are fine to the extent that they could back it up, but are we going to unequivocally back them? No, I don't think that it should be the policy. And that's been the Biden policy. So I, you know, I'll defend him on that. But his issue is rhetorically is that he needs to be and have clear definitions. The issue also, sorry, I know I'm going over time, but it's like Biden's lack of ability to articulate this in a, in a real doctrine is so dangerous. It allows the no-fly zone people to think that they're aligned with Biden. It allows, you know, even doves at a certain point. It, it's like Bidenology what we're all playing um, instead of a clearly defined set of goals. Like you could read Biden's speech one way and say, yeah, I mean, he literally called for regime change in Moscow. So it's like, you can call, you could read it that way, or you can read it the way you are. You're giving him the most charitable. And I think probably the best 
articulated version, but like you just never know with him. He could wake up one day and change. It's a huge problem for the Biden administration. No, I, that, this is what we'll close on because this yeah. is a total point of agreement. Yeah. I love you saying Bidenology because basically you're making yeah. a reference to this term Kremlinology, Kremlinology. during this yeah. whole, during the Cold War where the idea was you had all these like uber big brain PhDs who would be like, well, this thing happened in this doctrine. And basically, no, I agree. And, and actually, man, I, I appreciate you putting it that way because when I was defending Biden after the regime change thing, gaff, terrible mm-hmm. statement because it didn't even reflect his actual policy. At the end of the day, I basically sounded so mealy-mouthed because it's Bidenology. I'm like, no, like if you actually look at this thing, yeah, no, that's actually a great way to put it. So yeah, I think, look, winter's about to hit. That's going to affect Europe's energy prices. It's going to freeze the conflict to a bit. If there's one thing the Biden administration needs to do during this period between November and February, it's actually got this part together. This is a great yeah. place to end it. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you've made it this far, you deeply enjoy the realignment. We'd love for you to support us on Supercast. It's how we pay the bills. Realignment.supercast.com. We'll check the link in your show notes. We'll see you all next time. Sign up now. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the show's mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.